Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, the man said, we worked like dentists. That is what Professor, I hope I'm getting his name right, Redig DeCampo said about the work that he and his team had just finished. The year was early January 1974 when Redig DeCampos' work of restoration was about to be unveiled. You see, nearly seven months earlier in the Vatican in Rome, a man took a hammer to Michelangelo's Pietà, which is a marble structure of the mother of Jesus Mary holding her son immediately after his death. It was commissioned, get this, in 1498. And it was carved from a single block of marble. It is six feet, seven inches tall and weighs over 6,000 pounds. And now it had 15 marks of a sculpture's hammer where the marble had been broken and marred. Part of the nose, the veil, and the cheek were all damaged. But... Due to the incredible value and the beauty of the Pietà, it could not be left in its marred state. The director of the Vatican Museum said this, and these are his words, with any other statue, leaving the wounds of the attack visible, however painful, could have been tolerated, but not with the Pietà, not this miracle of art. And so, with the skill, patience, and precision of dentists remaking chipped teeth, Reddy DeCampos and his team went about their work using marble from the original statue. The result of their work, the New York Times said, was, quote, near perfect. What was broken and marred had been restored. The beauty and the glory of the original sculpture, one of the finest from the Renaissance era, had been brought back to its original form and beauty after being severely marred. Okay, so why start a story, a sermon, with a story like that? Well, it's actually quite simple, actually. The Bible is telling us tonight a similar story. A similar story of restoration. A similar story about you. A similar story about me. And believe it or not, a similar story about the entire cosmos, the entire creation. Put simply, a story about everything. Everything. The story goes something like this. God made a good world. It was made beautiful. It was made perfect. And then enter enter the ruin. Rebellion was introduced. And all of the creation is dealt the blows of a hammer. The hammer of sin and death and disease and brokenness that mars and damaged what was made good. Everything was touched by this. Don't you notice it? Have you noticed how death wins every time? You can't escape it. It's not always the way it was supposed to be. Have you ever noticed that people still hate each other? We hate each other for reasons I don't understand. And it's been like that ever since Genesis 3, when the hammer blows were delivered. Have you noticed as well that parents still divorce? That even though 
Jesus has happened. Families still fall apart. Have you noticed as well that mosquitoes are still alive and they still live? (laughs) You know, I can't dunk anymore. War continues and pimples are real. Like, what's up with this? And here's the picture. While we joke about some of these things, the pain and the brokenness in John's first audience's life Lives. They were no joking matter, were they? They were being persecuted. They were being killed for their faith. With persecution that was too soon to increase, just for what? For believing in Jesus. And if that weren't bad enough, there were men and women like me and you who know all too easily what it's like to fall asleep with Jesus. Meaning this, that he becomes ho-hum. That he becomes a bore. He sort of loses his panache in our eyes. And the point is, is that John is writing this image tonight. Why? To both comfort and to wake up. And here's the thing. The question that you maybe have wrestled with in your life, when you think about these these same questions, about these particular pains, when you think about those sorts of things in your life, you might wonder, what, what will God give me? All of this. And here's the answer. He gives you Revelation 21. He gives you an image tonight of a city descending, coming to us. And you might go, well, what help is that? Well, I hope to be able to show you that tonight. I hope to be able tonight to show you this beautiful picture because John is showing us, much like the work of those repairing sculptors, that God Himself, get this, is presently at work putting everything all of it back together. And John gives us a vision, a glimpse of what he sees. And he shows us that God himself, uh, that what he is showing is meant to give us hope, to put courage in us, and yes, to even meet us in our tears. This is the grand vision of how the story ends. That's what we're going to look at tonight. And I just have two simple headings for you. If I had PowerPoint behind me, I'd, I'd flip them up there. But first, I just want to show you this. I want to show you tonight what the vision is. And my two headings are this, what the new heavens and the new earth are like, and secondly, what the new heavens and the new earth are for. And I'm going to explain my terms in just a second, but I want you to understand that, what the new heavens and the new earth are like, and what the new heavens and the new earth are are for. First, some clarifying disclaimers that I need to give you. Tonight, I would venture to guess that if you've grown up around the church, that uh, if you're anything like me, that when you hear what comes out of my mouth in the next 25 minutes or so, your minds, are, your minds might be blown. Because you've never thought about heaven like this. You see, most of us, if we've grown up around church, think something like this. That heaven is a place that when we die, it's some place that we go off to. And I want to show you something from the text that's going to indicate something different. You might go, what? Well, that's new. It was new for me, but John's telling us right here. And I also need to give us a general timeline because I think there's a general confusion about what happens between our death and when Jesus returns. Does that make sense? There's a lot of confusion about that. And so in general, Orthodox Christianity has through through the ages asserted that this is the timeline. And I think it's biblical and there's slight nuance in here depending what tradition you come from, but it's essentially this. You die. And when you die, when you die, your body goes into the ground. And your soul 
goes to be with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul tells us that to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. But here's the thing. You have to understand that in Christian theology, what it means to be made man or woman is to be made both body and soul together. That we're bipartite. We're two parts. And in Christian theology, neither one of those gets a better ranking value. And that's where the trouble starts coming in for us because most of us have grown up in the theological and the philosophical thought stream of a man named Plato. Everybody heard, everybody heard of Plato? Okay. So Platonic dualism teaches more or less this, that that which is physical, so therefore that which is bodily, is less than that which is spiritual and soulish. And what really matters is the immaterial world, not the material. But listen to me. That is not Christian theology. That is not biblical teaching. In God's eyes, body and soul are both valuable. And the tragedy of death is this, that when you die, your body is separated from your soul. Now think about this. Most of us, when we go to funerals, intuit this, but we, we, we sort of get our theology wrong, right? So when Uncle Bob dies, okay, and you go to his funeral, and you look at him if, if he's in the casket, You typically say something like this. Well, he's what? He's in a better place now. And you know what? I want to urge you to quit saying that. Because what he is is in the the casket. His soul is away with the Lord. But that is every bit of Uncle Bob. And he will rise again, is what Christian theology tells us, where soul and body will be be reunited. You've got to understand that. So we've got death. Okay, now listen. Then the story goes like this. You have the return of Christ. And then you have the resurrection from the dead. All people rising from the dead. And then lastly, you have the great judgment. And then you have everlasting life or the second death. That's what we hear from the book of John. So that, if you don't understand that, nothing what I'm saying tonight is going to make any sense. Because what I'm trying to show you is tonight, John is talking about that last thing I mentioned that everlasting life or, the, or uh, that John is mentioning in chapter 21. So we've got to keep that in mind. Here's why. We typically refer to heaven as life after death. Has everybody heard something like that? Okay, listen. But that's not what John is talking about. John is talking about or referring to life after, life after death. Does that make sense? The reunion of what was split apart. So when John's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, he is assuming that body and soul are now gloriously remade and put back together, and life exists there. Okay? So you got to hang with me on that, or nothing's going to make sense. But if you hang there, watch what John shows us. Because I want to show you, first of all, what the new heavens and the new earth are like, its character. First, it describes it as a city. Did you catch it there? All the descriptions in it were, were uh, the measurements of the city. But he says this in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Remember from Revelation chapter 19, this stands in contrast to that counterfeit whore city called Babylon. She is gone now, and the true city comes. New Jerusalem is a reference to the corporate people of God the bride. That's what this is getting at, okay? So you have to understand that. But secondly, I want to show you this. But there's actually physical renewal happening as well. Look at verse 5. 
where the voice from the throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Excuse me, that was uh, verse 3. Verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. I love what Dr. Michael Williams, one of my seminary professors, wrote. He said this, that God doesn't make a junk, and He doesn't junk what He's made. That's going to be very important for where we're going. He doesn't make junk, and He doesn't junk what He's made. But here's the thing I want you to also see. I want you to see that God is saying that He is making all things new, and I'm not the first pastor to point this out. He is not saying, I am making what? All new things. You see that? That's what the text is showing us. So what is that telling us about what heaven itself is? What the new heavens and the new earth is like? It means there's continuity, friends, with this heaven and this earth. The old is gone, but the new has come. And so what this means is is this. Does your vision of heaven include physicality and stuff? Does your vision of what heaven itself is like, does it include that which is tangible? Because it does for John. And you know what else is really interesting? It does for Jesus too. Remember His resurrection? And that He is called in Paul's language the first fruits of the resurrection? Now the first fruits just means the first installment of something. And what John is telling us is that Jesus Himself understands the physicality of the resurrection. If you remember John's Uh, gospel letter. Do you remember what Jesus does after His resurrection? He shows up in what? Dermis and tendons and muscles, okay? And Thomas, his buddy, he says, Thomas, put your fingers in my hand. Thomas, put your hand in my side so that you will believe. And if that weren't enough, the next chapter in John 21, Jesus says, I'm hungry, let's have some fish. Now think about that. If that's, what Jesus is, is, if that's what His resurrected body is like, it is telling us something about the nature or what the new heavens and new earth are like. So far I've said it's a city. Secondly, I've said it's what? It's physical and then it's renewal. And look at verses 26 and 27. This is a beautiful image here that I love it. It says that they, that is um, the kings of the earth, that they will bring their glory into the city. In verse 26, they will, bring it in, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever eat it, and so on and so forth. What is this telling us? That heaven and earth, that the new heavens and the new earth are full of culture, y'all. Like what this is saying is, is the, the great kings of the earth are literally bringing all of their cultural artifacts that have been done beautifully, that have been done well, that have been done for Christ's kingdom, and they will be laid down at Jesus' feet. So think about this for just a moment. The wisdom of the Greeks in heaven. The art of the Italians. Math and architecture from the ancient Egyptians. The glories of the oceanic people. And the soul food of of the American South. All of it will find its way glorified and restored in the new heavens and the new earth. Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see this picture is is that God is remaking all things. And if that weren't enough, the last thing I want to touch on is this. Is I want to show you what changed my life. What changed the way I thought about being a Christian. And here it is. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 
2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Do you know what this is saying? And in Christian theology, the way our story ends is that you don't go to heaven. But what? That heaven comes to us. And heaven comes down to earth and remakes it and reshapes it and makes it beautiful. And heaven and earth are together again. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to say, wait a second, that makes it sound like like." Like God is uh, really concerned with like the created order. He doesn't make junk. And He does not junk what He has made. So what does this mean? This means that <laughs> heaven is not about some disembodied soulless state. Like I talked about last week, we all become genderless little cherub babies playing harps all the time. What a boring existence. Who wants that sort of heaven? What this is showing us is an earthly heaven. is a renewed heaven and earth together with all the cultural glories of people from across time and, and space brought into the King of, King of Jesus and laid down at His feet. We will hug in heaven. We will dance in heaven. We will work in the new heavens and the new earth. We will... We will see each other's faces. We will sit and we will laugh together. And what won't be there are tears. And what won't be there is death. And what won't be there is pain and mourning anymore. I mean, this is beautiful, y'all. And John is showing us that this is our great hope. And he's giving it precisely to us because we need to see it for it to matter in our life. I said last week and I'll say it again. Every human being, Christian or not, religious or not, is always taking some vision of the future, pulling it into the present, and doing life on the basis of it. Your then, as one pastor said, is always shaping your now. You can't not live that way. And John knows it, and so he shows us a city coming. He says, I'm making all things new. That's what he wants you to know. It's profoundly amazing in my eyes that this is showing us what this is uh, about what the new heavens and the new earth is like. Let's keep moving. Secondly, what is it for? What is the new heavens, what is uh, the new heavens and the new earth like? Secondly, what is the new heavens and the new earth for? And give me a moment just to take a sip. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather. Okay, I've said John knows his Old Testament. We said it every week. For us to understand what John is saying, we need to understand a bit of what John knows and what he understands. So I want to take us on a little bit of a train journey here with a few stops, okay? There's a couple of stops here that I want us to perk up on and listen to. And here it is. The first is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, okay? God made the world. Remember, John knows this, and I'm, I'm, going, to make, I'm going to connect all the loose ends, but I want to show you this. That God made the world, and he made a pla- when He made the world, He made a place called Eden. And in Eden, He put a garden. And it was there, if you'll remember, that God would come in the cool of the day and walk with Adam and Eve. Isn't that beautiful? Walks with God. That's what this is telling us. And you remember their task that God gave them to do, to be fruitful and to multiply. In other words, I want you to make lots of babies, and I want you to fill the earth with them. Why? Because of this. I want you also to subdue creation 
and order the earth in such a way that the rule of God would expand out of Eden to cover the entire world. So God as a king gave to his royal son and daughter the task of ruling, there's kingly language, over creation in such a way, here it is, that God's own rule, his kingdom, would be borne out more on the face of the earth. That was the project that Adam and Eve were supposed to do and they failed miserably. And things have been screwed up ever since. You remember the result, right? They failed. Why? Because they want to do things their own way. They Frank sinatra God, y'all. I'll do it my way. That's exactly what they did. And we've been doing it to Him ever since. My agenda for the cosmos is better than yours, God. Thank you very much. So what happens? Well, the world falls apart. But not before what? That Adam and Eve, second stop, I mean, first, still on the first stop here, are booted out of the garden And if they get back in, they'll die. Why? Because there's an angel with a flaming sword in his hand preventing Adam and Eve entrance back into the garden. Why? Because if they get to the tree of life, they'll live like this forever. It was a mercy for God to separate us. Second train station. Here it is. Secondly, the the idea of the tabernacle. Remember, sin entered the world. God's people were in Egypt in wilderness and in the wilderness. And God gave them a way to understand fellowship and communion with Him in this roving tent called the tabernacle. But inside that tabernacle, there was a little room. And that little room was called the Holy of Holies. And it was there that God's presence was said to dwell with them. So listen, you should hear this by now. The garden, we lost God's presence. We lost His face. But now at the tabernacle, God is making Himself, His presence made known with His people. Okay? And that continues for several years. Third stop along the train station. Guess what happens? God's people enter the promised land. They no longer need the roving temple. And so what do they do? They brick and mortar up and they build a temple. And the, and the, and the footprint, the, geog- I mean, the architecture for the, thing, the temple looks eerily similar to the tabernacle. There's a little back room in there. It's the shape of a cube. And do you know what it's like? It's called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence is said to dwell on earth with God's people. Okay? Now let's keep going forward. Jesus appears on the scene. And guess what he says? John chapter 1 tells us this, that God became flesh and he dwelt with us. But do you know what that word dwelt means? It means tabernacled with us. So guess what? God is now showing up with his presence in human form. Ding, 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 the God-man, Jesus. So the old temple is not needed anymore, but we get God's presence in the form of flesh. He has taken on flesh to be with us. Oh no, Jesus dies. There's the resurrection. Forty days later, God ascends. What's going to happen now to God's presence? Do you know what happens ten days later? Pentecost. Flames of fire on top of on the believers that day. What does fire represent? God's presence. Can you believe it now? It's God's presence inside His people. And you see the slow arc? It's that slow curveball returning home. It's that slow curveball coming back. That what we lost in the garden is slowly arcing back. And John, here it is for you baseball thrower, your hurlers, the bottom falls out. The pitch lands. Let me show you. Look at verse 16. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. 
and he measured the city with its rod. So he's taken the measurement of the entire city and its length and its width and its height are all equal. You know what this is saying? The confines of the new Jerusalem, of the city itself, are a perfect cube. That is telling us that this actually the holy of holies has now filled the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why the text can tell us this. That's why the text can tell us later on. Did you see it this? And I saw no temple in the city. There's not needed one anymore. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon. Why? Here's why. Because all of creation becomes God's dwelling place. Just like it was intended to be at the very beginning. Y'all, the ark has been completed in John's viewing. Here's what he's saying. That heaven itself is what all of us have longed for all of our days. But there would be a time where we'll be able to look God in the face, eye to eye, face to face once again. Think with me on this for a moment. Have you ever had an experience like this where you have this memory of some place that, you've, that, you, that you want to go or be back to or be inside of, but you know you've never been there? That there's a longing for a, a sense of home. I'm from, I'm from Middle Tennessee. When I go back there, I love it. But there's still an ache. It's not enough. Have you been able to experience that yet? Maybe some of you seniors, you've been back home before, and you begin to ask, like, I know my hometown is blank, but it doesn't feel like it anymore. And that begins to point to this ultimate reality that there's a home for me. John is saying, I know the place. It's the place with your Father. It's the place with the Son. And it's the place with the Spirit. That's the image there. And here's the thing I want to leave you with as we think about this. Um, The last thing I'll kind of say on it, and then I'll shut it down, is as follows. One of the things that we love to do at our house is to have people over and to celebrate together. And whether it be our neighbors or people from church or from the kids' school, we want our home to be a place where people can rest and in a sense know something of the welcome that God Himself gives us gives to us. It really is one of the reasons why we love having college students in our home as well, but I digress. Well, when all these families get together, and especially when they have small children, it gets absolutely insane in our house. It's craziness. And most of the time, without fail, what happens is that the parents end up talking together and the kids are running around the house crazy, playing in various parts of the house. Primarily, it's upstairs near our girls' bedroom uh, where their toys are, but they play outside in the hallway and and so on. Now listen, here's the moment. After everyone is gone... Uh, after everyone is gone from the house, there's always a panic that sets in with me and Laura because of the absolute mess that is littered across our house. Laura and I go upstairs, etc., and uh, and without fail, something always happens. It's like the celebration that has caused that that begun in the bedroom exploded out of their bedroom throughout the house. Pink everywhere. I got three girls. Pink everywhere. Dresses in like my bathroom somehow. I don't know how it happens, but it happens. It's like the celebration has caused the kids' space 
to take over our house, to expand its limits out of their bedroom to take over the house. The pink, the jewelry, through the hallway, into the guest room, whatever. And in the end, it's not uncommon for me to think, man, our whole house has just been run over by six-year-olds. Now listen, that's exactly what John is telling us is happening. That heaven comes. And the space overflows. It fills out of heaven. And it begins to occupy all that earth is with heaven and earth joined together again, y'all. Now listen, is this your great hope? Do you know this? If you don't, let me tell you how I can. How you can, how you can know that this is your future. Right here, right now, tonight. Christianity says that at the center of this is a man who died and rose again. And that Jesus Himself, when He was dying on the cross, He died outside the city gates, outside the city wall. And in fact, when He was hanging on the cross, His last words were, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? That He Himself was cut off from the face of God. So that what? So that you and me could actually have God's presence once again. He dies outside the city gates so that we might live forever inside them. Do you see that? And the great hope of the gospel is, is that Jesus himself dies the sinner's death so that we might get the presence of God. That's the all things new project, y'all. At the end of the day, it's so that we can be back with God face to face. And it's as good as gold. The last comment I'll say is this. There's a pastor that said this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities that you enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters... Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? John is making a way for us to see that we would never want that heaven. That we would never want that heaven because the one who has given himself for us will be the one who finally catches our gaze and we will see him face to face forever. Do you know that's your great hope if you're in Christ? If not, make it yours tonight. I'm not going to do anything weird to you. Just believe it. Trust it. Own it. Own it for yourself. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You love us and You care for us. We ask that You would take these things and put them deep into our hearts and that we would now be able to sing of the great promise that we have in You where we will know You and we will see You face to face. We pray all this in Your name. Amen.